This is Nathaniel Cogley. Welcome to Cogley and Morrow on Politics. My co-host, Dr. Eric Moreau, is not available this week, so we brought in a special guest, Dr. Bolek Kabbalah, into the studio, everyone. Uh, Bolek, thanks for coming. Yeah, thanks for having me. Good to be here. Uh, Dr. Kabbalah uh, studies the uh, federal government. He's also been teaching Texas government here at Tarleton State University. It's been great to have you here, a real expert. Uh, you did your undergraduate at Harvard and your graduate studies at Yale. So That's really right. quite a nice pedigree you have coming down here. No, it's been uh, a great experience in the classroom and uh, happy to be at Tarleton. Well, certainly we've had a lot of headline news on impeachments. Uh, President, The House is moving to impeach President Trump. Uh, we're expecting a floor vote on that coming up. Um, impeachment is something very interesting, very important for the checks and balances between the three branches in the um, Constitution, mm-hmm. a very significant moment. Uh, but this has become a very partisan environment here. Uh, Uh, It's headline news. People are studying it. And there's actually only been two impeachments of presidents in the United States history. It's going to be Andrew Johnson, Bill Clinton. We believe uh, President Nixon was about to be impeached and he resigned before that was possible. So we have three previous cases to look into. Uh, President Trump is the fourth that we have a significant case to look at. And of course, we'll see how that plays out. A lot of people differ on what's going on, the headline news. But what we wanted to bring you into the studio to talk about is the Andrew Johnson case, which was the first time a president was impeached in the United States of America. And I think there's a lot of interesting parallels here where we can learn some lessons from this case. Sure. So I'm no expert on this time period. I think you know it better than me, but my understanding is uh, President Lincoln wins in 1860. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Civil War is sparked, but President Lincoln originally had a fellow Republican vice president, Hannibal Hamlin. Mm -hmm. And so it was a solid Republican administration. As President Lincoln is going up for his re-election, Hannibal Hamlin is dropped from the ticket, Mm -hmm. and Lincoln looks as his second term is going to be a term of national unity, trying to put the union back together, you know, uh, get the southern states back on board. And so he drops uh, fellow Republican Hannibal Hamlin from the ticket, and he puts a Democrat on the ticket. So you have a Republican in the presidential slot and a Democrat in the vice presidential slot, and this is presented as a national unity ticket. Mm -hmm. Uh, Let the southern states, we have a Democratic Southerner like like you on the ticket. Um, And so this is done in my limited understanding symbolically in the election process to try to bring the union together. That's right. President Lincoln did not know he was actually appointing the next president of the United States. So after he's inaugurated for his second term in 1865, we get the Lincoln assassination. President Johnson becomes president in an environment where the Republican Party dominates Congress. Many Southern states are still not fully readmitted into the union and don't even have representation in the in the Senate and maybe the House. And so you get a Democratic president in a time where the Republican Party dominates Congress and they just fought a very bitter civil war. Sure. So I'm just setting the stage here. You get a President Johnson with a Republican Congress we can predict tension. Now, this is going to play out a certain way. So what is this dispute that arises between President Johnson and the Republican Congress? Sure. Where you had more than one dimension, I would suggest there was a personality uh, clash for sure. And there was also a policy uh, disagreement. So um, on a personal level, it's interesting. There was actually an earlier um, attempt to impeach then President Johnson. This starts in 1866. The attempt doesn't make it out of the uh, Judiciary uh, Committee. But so the personal dimension, Johnson shows up at his inauguration and he seems like he's inebriated. He's not making <laughs> uh, friends. So, so that's going on. There's also a disagreement about the terms on which former Confederate states should be readmitted into the Union. And this is where Johnson really disagrees with radical Republicans mm. uh, in the Congress um, and with President Lincoln, who, who wanted to be uh, more who wanted to see the formerly Confederate states readmitted uh, quicker. But Johnson goes beyond that and actually communicates he wants the U.S. to be a white nation uh, going forward. And he is willing to readmit formerly Confederate governments 
back into the U.S. at the state level, even when it's clear there's not a commitment to civil rights. So that's got to be hard for the Republican Party. They just fought and basically won a civil war. And now we get a uh, Democrat president from the South who would like... Well, as you say, quote unquote, white nation yep. and to admit the the former uh, Confederate states back into the union immediately. That's Whereas right. the Republicans just fought a war over this. And now all That's of a sudden exactly the commander right. in chief wants to do the opposite. This has to be very difficult. Very difficult. And so you start to see what are known as black codes come back in uh, as early as 1866, 1867. Former Confederates have the sense that Andrew Johnson is on their side. So this really starts to build. And another policy disagreement, President Johnson, immediately after assuming the office, starts to purge Lincoln's cabinet. And he's specifically getting rid of radical Republicans who are committed to Reconstruction. And so this is where Congress passes a law that leads to the impeachment crisis, right? So, yeah. So that is an interesting point because we think in terms of this conflict between the president and the Congress, but there's also this natural conflict between the president and his own cabinet, right? The cabinet's right. part of the executive sure. branch and he inherits Lincoln's cabinet. That's right. But he politically, he's very different. Not only do you have a Democratic president, a Republican candidate, but then you also have radical Republicans Republicans uh, in the cabinet, and th- those are the ones that President Johnson really—the uh, word is purging. I mean, he's he's getting rid of them left and right. So it seems like there'd be naturally some policy disagreements. You already mentioned some big picture disagreements that would exist between the Johnson administration and the Congress and and even his own cabinet that he inherited from Lincoln. What becomes the specific issue that's going to drive this impeachment effort against President Johnson? Sure. So it wasn't just the threshold. It wasn't just what percentage in a formerly Confederate state needs to now pledge loyalty to the union. It specifically came down to Ed Stanton, who was secretary of war. Um, And he's the last sort of uh, member of the the cabinet, a radical uh, Republican. It's Mm -hmm. clear President Johnson wants to get rid of him. Congress passes a law to protect Ed Stanton and prevent President Johnson from being able to remove him. It's called the Tenure of Office Act. And immediately after uh, it passes, uh, President Johnson vetoes it. Congress passes it over his veto. President Johnson goes ahead, fires Ed Stanton, Secretary of War, (laughs) anyway. And that triggers the impeachment crisis. So he wanted to remove Lincoln, the the Secretary of War that Lincoln had put in there. That's right. And... uh, maybe replace him with his own appointee, which would have to go through the Senate, as we know. But um, is there any precedent at this point about the ability of a president to terminate a secretary of war? I guess, especially if they're not following their their policies or they're they're not working according to the president. Sure. Well, this is where it was assumed there hadn't been this kind of test before, but it had been assumed constitutionally that a president is well uh, within his rights. Uh, This is presidential prerogative to retain or get or fire a member of of the cabinet. So this was a first. This was Congress asserting itself in a pretty unprecedented way. The Supreme Court goes on in the 1920s to vindicate Andrew Johnson and held that the Tenure of Office Act was unconstitutional. So in that respect, Johnson is later uh, vindicated. But it seems at this point, what we have here is a law out of the Congress, but the Johnson administration is perhaps thinking that law is not constitutional because it's intruding on the executive branch, intruding on his ability to be the commander-in-chief and appoint his own secretary of war. Do I have that right? That's right. And that's separate from the issue of the kinds of governments that Johnson is seeking to readmit. This was a separate constitutional issue. All right. So this is going to build up. And I think the House goes full bore here against Johnson. I think there's, you know, we're going to discuss later in the show how there's two pending articles of impeachment against President Trump, not against President Johnson. There were 11. Wow, that's a lot. Can you tell us about that? Not just uh, 11, but the House appointed uh, seven managers uh, to make the case. These individuals included Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts, John Bingham of Ohio. Managers go on to continue to make the case in the Senate. This is an all-out effort to remove the president. Yeah, and some of these are kind of very vague and interesting. I mean, we have the more specific ones that are targeting, you know, removing a secretary of war, replacing a secretary of war, not following the Tenure of Office Act. But then we have some really vague ones. So like number 11, which actually will come up for a vote later, bringing disgrace and ridicule to the presidency by his aforementioned words and actions. Right. And so this is where some of the inauguration 
behavior, some of these oh, personality issues come into play. It doesn't take away from the fact that the House does appear petty in, in using that as, a, as an article of impeachment. But again, Johnson had not helped himself. Yeah. And then another one, making three speeches with intent to, quote unquote, attempt to bring into disrespute, excuse me, into disgrace, ridicule, hatred, contempt, and reproach the Congress of the United States. Very, very right. vague language. Very vague. 11 of these. So this goes to, uh, they bring all 11 charges to a vote in the House. And we're going to see that it passes uh, big. It looks like it has uh, 126 in support with only 47 against. That would, that would be a massive vote in support. That's right. 126 to 47. So this is 1868. There's no question this this passes the House. Yeah. And, and it, lo- it looks like at that time, of course, it's, it's not an even balance between Republicans and Democrats. The Republicans dominate because once again, not all the Democratic states in the South had been readmitted and had representation. I think there were actually 147 Republicans, 44 Democrats at the time and four independents. That's right. And there, so we get a, a vote of 126 to 47 with 17 abstaining. Right. From this. Yeah. Right. And so, of course, impeachment is a political question. It's not spelled out precisely in the criminal or civil code what constitutes an impeachable offense. And Johnson, really, there was a policy disagreement, but the House does appear somewhat partisan, drawing up 11 articles of impeachment and including some of the vague provisions that you mentioned. Yeah. And, and partisanship in a time where the party really dominates a chamber, right. you know, is, is a bit different than with a narrow majority. So exactly. they, they passed these 11 and it's got to go over to the Senate. Um, and so can you talk first about how that trial is conducted? Right now, we're looking as this thing moves to the House on President President Trump and maybe goes to the Senate. There's a lot of talk about what's the, what's the trial going to look like so the Johnson case can maybe get some insight into what's happened in the past. How did they handle that trial situation in the Senate? Sure. So similar setup constitutionally in terms of the individual who presides over that Senate trial is the justice of the Supreme Court. So that's Sam and Chase at the time. Seven managers from the House successful attempt to impeach the president continue to make the case in the Senate. So we're talking about Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts here, James Bingham from Ohio, James Wilson and others. And they make the case that the president needs to be removed. Now, the president gets to defend himself at this point. This Mm -hmm. is an actual trial, not just the House making the case to remove. And so who's helping President Johnson at this point? It's his attorney general, Henry Stanberry, the secretary of state, William Seward, who's got a uh, machine in, in New York, is doing some work behind the scenes. And so the president actually does mount a sophisticated constitutional defense to say this is more about personality. It's it does not involve a legitimate constitutional issue. And despite all that, as you know, the vote in the Senate was very close. <clears throat> yeah. And so let's look at these numbers here. We see that the vote is going to be 35 yays. Well, first of all, they bring three articles to a vote, not all 11. So they bring um, Article 2, uh, appointing Thomas Secretary of War ad interim, and then three, appointing Thomas without required advice and consent to the Senate and bringing disgrace and ridicule to the presidency. They're going to bring these three different articles at three different stages to a vote. They all pass at a vote of 35 to 19. If I'm correct, that's 54 senators representing 27 states. And at that time, there are 10 other states that do not have representation in the Senate. Do I have that right? That's right. Okay. And if we break down this vote of 35 to 19, it's a percentage of 65%. And my understanding, you need two thirds to convict and remove. So they seem to be one vote shy. You're talking literally one vote shy of removing a president. So this is the closest that it's ever come. And it looks like as we look at this breakdown, um, the nine Democratic senators all defend Johnson. None of them break ranks. But within the Republican Party, you have 45 senators and there are 10 of them that break there. Only 35 vote to impeach. 10 Republican senators vote not guilty and therefore they're one vote shy. What might have been the thinking of those 10 that break from the from the 45 
Republican senators. That's right. So this is interesting, and it speaks to that disagreement you had in the Republican Party during Reconstruction. Radical Republicans, on the one hand, wanting to move as fast as possible in terms of restructuring formerly Confederate society, insisting on a maximum number of former Confederate officials pledging allegiance to the Union as the price of readmission. You did have some non-radical Republicans, so to speak, some moderates who were more in line with the approach Lincoln wanted to take. And my bet is those are the kinds of Republicans who were not on board with this impeachment effort. All right. Interesting. And so he's going to stay in office. He's going to be able to finish out his term. This was obviously a big dramatic moment in the American politics at that time. Closest it ever came. Yeah. Um, Were there any winners out of this? We have the the Congress pushing for the impeachment of Johnson, defending himself, surviving by one vote. Mm -hmm. Did anyone win out of this whole process? Well, this is where I would argue there might be some analogies to the contemporary situation. My answer is no winners. If you look at what happens to President Johnson's political career, he does not get reelected. Interestingly, he does get reelected back to the Senate from Tennessee, so he can point to that. But whenever people bring up President Johnson today, it's inevitably in the context of impeachment. Nothing else gets accomplished in his presidential term. He doesn't win in any sense, despite the acquittal. On the Republican side, if you look at the individuals who were involved in making the case that he should be removed, not a lot of clear winners there either. So these seven House managers, if you look at examples, include Benjamin Butler of Massachusetts, John Bingham from Ohio, James Wilson, their political careers in the 1870s tarnished by scandals. They don't go on to really accomplish anything significant either. So that's a fair assessment. Alan Buelzo, um, noted historian of this period, uh, has also concluded there's really no winners. So no winners out of a partisan impeachment that it doesn't even get the job done. How about that? How about that? (laughs) Um, And so going forward, I think the Johnson case is interesting, and I'm wondering your thoughts on it, because he's not held up as a great U.S. president. Right. Uh, He's pretty low on historians' rankings of job performance, Mm -hmm. but historians have kind of looked back on this impeachment and seen it as improper. Can you speak to that? I think given the... Yes. And also an analogy is look how close it was to the next presidential election. We're not talking about the beginning of his presidential term. I think if you look at the fact that out of the 11 initial articles of impeachment, most of them did not have to do with constitutional issues. That's one reason why most people today would say it was improper. Most historians, it had to do with personality, not constitutional issues. The Supreme Court goes on to vindicate Andrew Mm. Johnson in the 1920s and holds that the Tenure of Office Act was actually unconstitutional. So that's another contributing factor. Congress asserted itself beyond what the Constitution envisions. The president does need to be able to control who's in who's in the cabinet. <laughs> so as you are speaking, and we're trying to, of course, this is a good topic for today's show because of the current situation. I sure. just marked some takeaways and I'll just, call, I'll, I'll mention them and you can give me any comments if you have on them. Some takeaways here. One, a very partisan environment. We seem to be yes. in that in the, in the U.S. right now. Um, the trial procedures, people are kind of questioning what's the trial going to look like? Mm-hmm. What's interesting here, they only voted on three and supposedly didn't vote on the other eight. And that's, that's right. been a topic of discussion. Does McConnell even have to have a trial or can he dismiss? Um, sure. We see that the side prosecuting the president broke in their votes, not the side defending their president. That'd mm-hmm. be interesting as we look forward to their Senate trial with President Trump. No winners. I mean, are we going to have winners in this situation? Right. And another thing that um, I've noticed is this seems to be an impeachment about whether or not the president can do his job. Um, Trump was doing his job in terms of trying to enforce a treaty on assistance in criminal matters with Ukraine, requesting an an investigation. He's also temporarily deferring funds in the fiscal year, another job. But um, the Congress is saying you can't do your job that way. We don't like the decisions. And maybe maybe they have a, a legitimate concern about his decision making, right. but these are within his job scope. Sure. And we assume a president in his job scope can also uh, fire a secretary of war. So just, sure. just looking at what you presented 
ended here is kind of what some interesting takeaways are. Any thoughts or observations as I went through that list? No, I agree with all of that. And I would just alongside that mention the proximity to an election. You know, Governor Morris at the Constitutional Convention speculated that impeachment would always be a risky approach for whoever is initiating it just because the American people prefer to have these policy disagreements out at the ballot box. So the fact that we're very close in 1868 to the next presidential election Mm. and the Congress doesn't wait for that election, you know, that contributes to the impeachment effort not being successful. I think that might be an analogy here. Again, it doesn't suggest there weren't legitimate policy disagreements. Just the question that comes up is, do the American people prefer to resolve those democratically at the ballot box as opposed to in an impeachment proceeding? Well, that's very interesting. Very relevant today. Some people are saying, let's just have the election. Let's decide this at the ballot box. So a very interesting time for us to take a look at this Andrew Johnson case and relevance. Uh, we really thank you for coming on. I'm asking you to stick through the break. Maybe maybe you want to chime in as, as, sure. as I have some things to say on the current impeachment process going on. Uh, Cogley and more Cogley and Morrow on politics right after the break. The home of Essential Jazz with Hank Jones and Mike Pierce. This is 90.5 KTRL-FM, Stephenville. This is the story of a very special woman. Just a few knew about her superpowers. In a matter of seconds, she turned herself into a great mathematician. She masqueraded as a regular person at work, but as a superhero at home. Everyone knows her as Gabriella. I still call her Mom. Your hero needs you now, and AARP is here to help. Find the care guides you need to help, complete with tips and resources at aarp.org caregiving. Brought to you by AARP and the Ad Council. Explore where the dinosaurs roamed at Dinosaur Valley State Park in Glenrose. You can hike, explore, and see footprints left behind by the dinosaurs that once roamed there. The park offers guided tours, lush and expansive trails, and you can even bring your own horse to ride through the more than 100 acres. For more information or to ask about volunteering, visit tpwd.texas.gov and click Find a Park. Home of Beatles and Beyond with Mo Minkazi. This is KTRL 90.5 FM, Tarleton State University Radio. Welcome back to Cogley and Morrow on politics. Dr. Morrow is not with us today, and Dr. Kabbalah has graciously agreed to stick around and help me out fill up this hour on some of his interesting observations concerning uh, the current impeachment process underway. Good to be here. We're we're lucky to have you. Um, One thing interesting is there was a time back in March, uh, Nancy Pelosi said she wouldn't be moving on articles of impeachment Mm -hmm. unless there was bipartisan support and the evidence was over overwhelming and compelling. Um, She appears to be moving forward now. Some people want her to do that. Some people uh, support this, but it's certainly not bipartisan. This is certainly the the partisan lines are very sharp on this. And the evidence hasn't uh, convinced everyone. I mean, they had those uh, four scholars in the Judiciary Committee. Three of them were saying move, but then um, Jonathan Turley was very opposed to this. And he's a very uh, important scholar on this. So it doesn't seem like the evidence is overwhelming for everyone or bipartisan, but we're moving forward anyway. Mm -hmm. So I have this theory. I was wondering if you had any thoughts. I think what's happening here is, is the inquiry was itself designed to be an investigation and gain information. And there might have been genuine concerns about decision making and stuff like that. But to move forward now where we don't nobody thinks Trump's going to be convicted and removed in the Senate. Um, And it's tough. It's always been tough for her to put 31 Democratic members of the House from Trump districts having a vote on whether or not to impeach the president that the district chose in a presidential election year, that's always been tough. And you would think, why would she do that to those 31 if there's actually no chance? Well, and she resisted for such a long time. She resisted. She was very patient and she resisted. But my theory, what's going on here is the politics, the person making decisions here is not 235 Democrats. It's the speaker. 
Mm-hmm. It's just, she controls the agenda. Mm-hmm. And the politics behind being speaker, you need so many things to happen. You need to win your home district. You need to have support of your party and you need your party to keep a majority. Mm-hmm. And she's got to juggle all these things. And we've been thinking of her as the, the moderate patient, governing Democrat. She's from San Francisco. By the way, I'm from San Francisco. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. I I grew up middle school, high school, one of my two hometowns. I love San Francisco. I still go back there sometimes. But the politics of San Francisco is not the politics of Erath County, right? So uh, San Francisco is one of the most democratic districts in the country. This media constant attention on this impeachment and the framing has it to the point where 83% of Democrats think he should be impeached. And the politics of San Francisco, it's hard for her to continue to be seen as the obstacle to impeachment, that he should be impeached, but the speaker won't bring it to the floor in her district where there's so many Democrats. San Francisco has a very interesting top two system. So in the November ballot, it's not going to be the Republican nominee versus Democratic nominee, in which case she wins. All the candidates are on the same ballot in March. Top two go to the final in November. She's never faced a fellow Democrat in the November election as her only opponent, Mm -hmm. but it was close last time. There was only 1,175 votes away from having a fellow Democrat opponent in November, and not just any Democrat, a Bernie Sanders supporting Democratic Socialist. How about that? And that district, you know, is, Bernie's pretty popular. Bernie's Bernie's a candidate. She's 79 years old. And I just think the politics of her home district have gotten to her. We're getting this close to that first round primary in California. She's got to move on this. She can't be seen by her district as being the obstacle to impeachment. Um, So you think had she not brought this process, had she not initiated, lent her support to impeachment, she was looking at a serious primary challenge in her district? Yeah, I would. Well, we're looking at if she doesn't consolidate, if she consolidates Democratic support now, Number two can be a Republican with about 10%. Okay. And then she faces the Republican in November and defeats him easily. But if she loses like another 10% of Democrats or another 15% of Democrats, number two could be a fellow Democrat in at 12%. Okay. So I'm not saying it should be on everyone's radar right now, Mm -hmm. but California, even if you have a majority on the first ballot, you don't win. It's about the top two go to the November ballot. Interesting. So even if a fellow fellow Democratic, Democratic Socialist, and there's a gentleman, he has a, a, a Stanford law degree. He came in third place last time. He was the one a thousand votes away from qualifying Democratic Socialist, Stanford law degree. Very, doesn't look like uh, uh, the optics are the best, right. but he's he's articulate. He, he flows. I mean, yeah. He's able to make the, the Democratic Socialist case. Um, he's going hard. There's another impressive young lady who has another degree from Stanford. She's very interesting and compelling. Mm-hmm. And it could be either of these people. But if they're able to come in second place, and again, not second place with 30%, 40%, second place with 12%. Just close enough. And you've written about this in the Washington uh, Examiner. Is that right? I mean, I've really found your articles on this interesting. Well, thank you very much. I've written on the Empowerment Control Act in the Examiner. My my Pelosi op-ed did not yet. We're still circulating that one. That's, well, it will yeah, happen. That I will think get published. So. But so you're saying there's a rationality to her uh, initiating this process connected to electoral considerations in her home district. It's not irrational. She, this is, she's behaving in a rational, she's making rational choices. I think she definitely wants the party to do well. She wants those 31 Democrats from Trump districts to do well. Mm -hmm. She wants Democrats in the Senate to do well. She wants the Democratic presidential candidates to do well. She wants it all to do well. She's on Team Democrat. But priority is no, is is number one. Okay. You, have, you have a number one priority, and it's yourself, and it's your own reelection. And I think she thinks she has to, because of her district politics, she has to move on this. She can't be seen as the obstacle of impeachment, that she has to do it for herself, and also that she can still survive as speaker uh, going forward doing this because it'll satisfy the, 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 the other members in the Democratic House that right. also themselves need to move on right. impeachment right, right. and need to tell their vote. Voters, they'll support the speaker because she's moving on impeachment. Right. And uh, also those 31 Democrats from Trump districts, they can vote no. There, there can be a mix. And sure. they, they can do a different vote for their district. Emphasize she's not, conscience. quote unquote, whipping the 31. She's not, yeah. Yeah. So that's my thoughts. Any thoughts? That, do I have that one right or wrong? Well, that makes a lot of sense to me. If I could actually ask you uh, about that, tying it specifically to Nancy Pelosi's electoral prospects in her home District, how are those affected if the Senate trial, as appears to be the case, 
goes nowhere. I mean, does that help her or hurt her in her district in, in California? Is that a wash? You're saying the possibility of her being seen as on the sidelines, not allowing for impeachment to go forward would have been more detrimental to her in California. But what if the inevitable happens and nothing takes place in, in the Senate? Doesn't that hurt her back home in her in her district? No, because her district is way far Democrat. They'll say that she tried. Forward. She okay. tried and she she she'll say best. the Republicans obstructed in the Senate and and they just, you know, overlooked the facts and okay. she had the integrity to go forward. And I mean, it's just the key here. Who's going to be number two on that March 3rd ballot in California? If it's a Republican, she wins re-election. Right. It's a wrap. Yeah. It, it does, it, nothing else matters. San Francisco's not going to vote for a Republican because the trial in the Senate didn't go well. Okay. You know, so you're I mean, saying the disenchantment, the frustration with her, the way she managed the impeachment problem, you don't see that spilling over into a, a vote for a Bernie Sanders-like San candidate. San Francisco voters will only have two choices come November. If it's Nancy Pelosi or a Republican, she wins. Nothing else matters. It's a lock. Makes sense. Um, but if it's her versus a Democratic Socialist, we haven't seen that before. She hasn't faced that before. Yeah. But we've had it in California and other races, two yeah. Democrats in the final. It yeah, can yeah. definitely happen. Um, well, that position is being articulated in the Democratic Party now. Can I ask you about... Um, there had been some speculation that a vote might not even take place uh, in the House, that there was just a strategic consideration here for Democrats in terms of dragging out uh, a process, but then not letting see the attempt go down to defeat. How certain are you, uh, percentage-wise, that an impeachment vote actually takes place in the House? Yeah, so we've seen some reports come out that some of these um, 31 Democrats from Trump districts have floated the idea of, instead of doing impeachment, do a censor. Yeah. Um, but, and, and, and that's... That might be better for the politics of their district. The only thing is none of them are speaker. Mm-hmm. None of those 31 yeah. Democrats from Trump districts are speaker. Voters. Yeah. That might be wise for them. It might be wise for the party. Uh, Nancy Pelosi's speaker. Mm-hmm. She's from San Francisco. Um, the chairs of the committee are from New York City, L.A. Um, they're going to go forward. So I think why that might be wise, and it's definitely something to entertain, and it could, in a different scenario, be the, the thing for the party to do. Pelosi's indicated... She's going forward, and uh, that that's a wrap. I mean, she's going to go forward, and it right. makes sense for her district. So I definitely uh, think the vote's coming. You know, so some of these moderate Democrats who might prefer not to see it happen, we're talking about Van Drew in New Jersey. I mean, there were two Democrats, is that right, who voted against opening up a formal uh, inquiry. So they would prefer, you're saying, a censure resolution. Yeah. So we already saw two Democrats break ranks from that 31. And what they broke ranks on was voting for the rules for the public hearings. A resolution, I believe, 660 Mm -hmm. that uh, authorized public hearings on impeachment. Yeah. So Representative Colin Peterson in western Minnesota Mm -hmm. uh, from a Trump district. He voted no on that. And then Representative Jefferson Van Drew, who's been more vocal in the media. He's he's totally against this. He's from uh, New Jersey, southern New Jersey. And he's interesting to me in terms of the electoral calculation, because I think his district overlaps with Atlantic City. Is that right? And his his district has benefited from... Trump businesses in the yeah. past being involved there. <clears throat> yeah, and I think Trump won that district by by five points. That's right. You know, and he was able to win a Trump district. It's good for the Democrats. They have a Democrat winning in a Trump district. And so, yeah. but they should want him to win. But it, this is a tough vote for him. And and he's all in on the, this is improper. This shouldn't take place. Right. So we've only we've only seen two break. Now we did see one Republican break a while ago. He broke so such a big break, he's no longer a member <laughs> of the party. So Justin Amash in Michigan. Yeah, right. Yeah. So he did break off. But one thing is that balance, right? We talk about difficult votes when the the representative is a different party than who the district right. wants for president. So there's 31 Democrats from Trump districts. There are only three Republicans from mm-hmm. Clinton districts. So it's a total imbalance. It's not like there's 31 on the other side. Yeah. 31 Republicans from Clinton districts. There's only three. One of them is Representative Will Hurd mm-hmm. out of Southern Texas. And he's retiring. Is he's that retiring. Right? Yeah. So his electoral calculations are done. He's not trying to think about he's got to he's got to vote with the Democrats because they his district voted for Clinton. I mean, he's, he's, that's out of his head. So he There's can a, do whatever he wants because he's not yeah. thinking about getting he's re-elected. not running for reelection. And if he's smart, he'd probably want to stay in good graces of the party. He sure. may have some other good positions in his future. He's relative. I think he's in his 40s still. Mm-hmm. So we have two others. There's only two other districts. Um, New York's 24th has Representative Cat. 
uh, Catco, and then Pennsylvania's first has Representative Fitzpatrick. So there, it's a two versus 31 yeah. that are in tough situations sure. in that house. So I think Pelosi is definitely going forward with these uh, articles of impeachment in the House. And we've seen, Dr. Kabbalah, we've seen final articulation out of the Judiciary Committee about what these articles are. And it's boiled down to two. Now, we've heard lots of and different sorry, words. Can I just out? Yeah, go chime ahead. in with one other question? It's interesting to me, substance aside, the substance of the charges uh, aside, the contrast with the 1990s impeachment of Bill Clinton, when you did see a number of Republicans, excuse me, when you did see a number of Democrats, I think it was 20 something break and join a Republican majority in the House to impeach, uh, that contrast stands out to me as you think about these moderate Democrats who might be having second thoughts uh, today about moving forward. It, it's, uh, again, substance aside, it's it's a different political calculation. Yeah, and we discussed the Johnson impeachment before the break, and the Clinton impeachment is, it's more fresh in people's minds. Right. A lot of people were around following it then, but it was rather different procedurally. There was an independent counsel investigation. Right. Clinton was involved in um, grand jury testimony and court mm -hmm. cases in the judicial branch and courts of law and the independent counsel found that he had committed perjury right. and obstruction of justice and that had been conclusively documented in the report. Right. So there was kind of like an admission of a crime. It just wasn't sure if that crime had anything to do with his office of the presidency right. or if impeachment was conviction and removal was warranted given that the crimes sure. were about in a, trying to cover up an affair he had. I mean, I think Newt Gingrich himself has expressed some regret, uh, said he had second thoughts today looking back politically on how Republicans handled that. But notwithstanding, you had that was a bipartisan effort compared to the current one. You had something like 20-odd Democrats join the Republican majority in voting to MP. Uh, just a thought that I had. Yeah, very good. And it's just so opposite from the current one. So with the Clinton one, we definitely have crime. It's just a question of it. It's not negatively harming the national interest, quote-unquote. Yep. We're here in the Trump one. There's no crime, but there's a claim that he's acting against the national interest. That overlap. Yeah, it's just it's kind of the opposite. So what we have here is two charges. One is called abuse of power. And what's interesting here is there's no claim that there was actual a crime involved. They're linking two separate things. Mm -hmm. um, the president requested to the president of Ukraine that he look into Burisma, uh, and maybe Hunter Which Biden's a involvement, company, is that a natural right? gas company yeah. in the Ukraine. Also, that the president look into um, any Ukrainian involvement in the 2016 election. Mm -hmm. um, so there's some request for information that's documented on the call. And then they're saying that the president withheld two things. Um, one, a White House meeting. Mm -hmm. So my understanding, that's there's no crime. The president doesn't have to give anyone a, a White House meeting. He kind of decides who he meets with. Sure. Um, and then the president withheld $391 million in aid that Congress had authorized security aid for Ukraine. But of course, as I've highlighted in some of those op-eds, and we discussed on this right. show a little bit in previous weeks, um, the president is allowed to do that according to the Empowerment Control Act of 1974. He's allowed to temporarily defer funds within the fiscal year, which ran through September 30th. He released the funds before the end of the fiscal year. Mm -hmm. um, so, so what's yeah. interesting is, is as the Democrats have talked about up to the point, they were suggesting there was some statutory law that he had violated. Mm -hmm. In these articles of impeachment, we don't see it, but we do see that they're saying he, he did the request for investigations in, in terms of he's expecting, he's going to withhold the meeting or the funds until yeah. he gets the investigation. And that kind of, his combination of those decisions conveyed a certain had, quote unquote, and this is page three, line 24 of the articles of impeachment, had, mm -hmm. quote unquote, corrupt motives. Okay. So it's not a, that he, that he had, he tried to exercise authority he didn't have, but that his motives were corrupt in combining two separate decisions that he made. Okay. Any thoughts? And it's going well. And motive is so much harder to prove right, yeah. than an actual action or a concrete policy step. I find myself wondering about that. So the motive—I mean, has that ever 
been been done before. I don't think that's ever been attempted as part of a uh, impeachment uh, inquiry, even in in criminal and civil matters. A motive, I mean, it's relevant, but you know, other factors have to be decisive, right? Yeah, um, exactly. And so we hear in, and it's actually articulated here mm -hmm. that you know his motive is to damage his 2020 political opponent, Joe Biden. But Trump's going to be very easily say, no, my motive was to find out something, to look into something going on in Ukraine in 2014, 2016 that that strike me as curious. Right. Um, and it's not a question of whether Joe Biden or Hunter Biden did anything wrong, but did President Trump think there was something to look into? And sure. it's going to be very easy for him to make that case. Um, you know, and I would think there's two kinds of quid pro quos here. I'm curious how this plays in the Senate. There's a personal quid pro quo where it seems to me Democrats would clearly be on stronger ground. But then there's a, a policy quid pro quo. And this happens all the time in legislatures, in government. If I take this policy step, the other side takes another policy step. That's a totally legitimate quid pro quo, right? So I guess the question is, in terms of how the case proceeds in the Senate, are we talking about a personal quid pro quo? Or are we talking about a professional policy-related exchange? Because the policy-related exchange, and I think Jonathan Turley was getting at this, that's a thinner case if, if Democrats want to go there. Yeah, I, I do think you're right. And also this question of that he's doing it for personal interest, not national interest. I don't know if there's, if there's concern about someone serving on a, a son of a vice president serving on a board making $50,000 a month right. and this is uh, kind of curious you can make a case that his request to look get to the bottom of it quote unquote is in the national interest and if it if, if it happens to help his electoral campaign, that's like coincidental or something like that. I give an analogy of, you know, if the U.S. is in a war and the president asks another country to be an ally in the war, right. they do. We win the war. And by golly, the USA is happy and we win the next election. Do we have national interest and personal? Well, you know, there's that overlap. And there's a question with the personal overlaps with uh, policy related. You know, there's the question of optics. There's the question of is it a high crime or misdemeanor? So is the abuse of power in your estimation speaking? directly to that motive or what what is abuse of power in the charge referring to do you yeah, well, it's kind of legitimizing that he has the power to make these decisions, but right. saying that he's he's abusing them because he has corrupt personal motivations, and they're they're telling us Joe Biden's his political opponent in 2020. That'd be news to me. <laughs> he doesn't have a delegate to the convention yet. Yeah. Nor was I ever thinking Joe Biden's going to be the nominee. I was expecting this not to happen. I'm okay. expecting someone else to be the nominee at yeah. the whole time. And you've had the superdelegate rule change. So yeah, if Joe Biden yeah. wants to go that route, that's harder this time around. But I, I get that not everyone agrees with me. Some people think Biden is going to be the nominee, and maybe some people think uh, Trump's intentions weren't good. It's just, it's not clear. I mean, it, it's up for interpretation. Mm -hmm. It's up for what was he thinking? What, not what decision did he made? What was his motive behind the decision? And it's just going to be very hard to prove that sure. in a court of law, especially on the testimony we've seen. Um, someone like Sondland. Mm -hmm. So Sondland, Ambassador Sondland, the he's the ambassador to the EU. He was one of the, he was the, the high point for Democrats when it came to the House public hearings yep. because he actually talked to the president directly. Other people were hearsay evidence. And he said when it came to the White House meeting, he had an understanding through Giuliani mm -hmm. that President Trump wasn't going to give a meeting unless there were investigations, not of Biden in 2020, but of Ukraine's interference in 2016 sure. and the Burisma Corporation. Sure. They said, you mean the Bidens? He said, no, I never heard Biden. I heard Burisma, Burisma. Yep. But he did connect it to the White House meeting. Yep. But when it came to the funds, he said, I called President Trump directly said, hey, what, what do you need for the funds? He said to me, President Trump says, I need nothing. I don't mm -hmm. want anything. Tell yeah. him to do the right thing. Yeah. No quid pro quo. Yeah. And that was like their best witness. Which is interesting. Yeah. yeah. I said the same thing to people. I thought Gordon Sondland clearly went beyond hearsay. And I think Ken Starr, before he made, before Gordon Sondland made that point about no actual quid pro quo in terms of finances, in terms of aid, Ken Starr goes over, Ken Starr makes a point about, okay, maybe people will flip in the Senate, but then Gordon Sondland adds that piece that you just mentioned and the picture changes a little bit. It totally changes. And the best they had is that Sondland believed through Giuliani, he wanted something for a White House meeting. He had, they had nothing on the funds. Mm -hmm. And the whole media narrative has been, he withheld funds, he withheld funds, he withheld funds. The public... 
does not want to impeach this president because he didn't give someone a White House meeting. You know, yeah, it seems like the, the funds are the more bigger thing where the public sentiment is there. The media is driving the narrative yep. and they had no evidence linking that. Um, the White House meeting, we had whatever Sondland provided. There was something there, but Americans don't want to peach on a White House meeting, which is one of my points about this abuse of power case. Instead of two articles of impeachment on abuse of power, one, he withheld a meeting, mm -hmm. two, he withheld funds. They've combined them. They've combined them and, and it kind of traps the voters in the House and the Senate right. because the evidence for meeting is different than the evidence for the funds and yet it's packaged together. They got a yes or no on this kind of package deal. So it's getting a little convoluted, which just in terms of strategy seems like it complicates the issue for Democrats. Whatever happened to the bribery possibility? Wasn't that being considered as one of the articles that at one point seems like that's fallen by the wayside? We saw extortion. We saw bribery. They've fallen by the wayside. I think the money's going in the wrong direction direction for bribery. This isn't about Trump getting money. You know, um, this is about him requesting uh, to get to the bottom of something. And we have a treaty with Ukraine on these matters. So it seems like, and of course we know our listeners um, disagree. We have a, a variety of listeners. These are just our humble, humble takes on what we're seeing, but eventually there's going to be votes. I mean, sure. and eventually history is going to look back on this. So eventually the other people will be able to weigh in. The other charge we have here is obstruction of Congress. Very interesting, Dr. Kabbalah, because it is not obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. It's obstruction of Congress. Any thoughts before I, I add to that? Well, I would think obstruction of justice is the uh, stronger uh, case to make. I'm wondering why uh, Democrats have chosen uh, not to not to make it. We have an example uh, in the Johnson uh, impeachment uh, in the 1860s of Congress being wrong. The Supreme Court later ruled in the 1920s that Congress had overstepped its prerogatives in attempting to thwart a, a president from exercising control over the cabinet. So I, I wonder about that. Why aren't Democrats making the more confident sounding uh, obstruction of justice uh, case here? Parts of government, branches of government can be wrong. They, they have been. So that that's a question mark for me, too. I, I, I wonder about that. I believe there is no obstruction of justice charge because they never went to the courts. Um, the reason President Trump didn't comply or have his White House or have his executive branch agencies comply with all the subpoenas is because he claimed a right of executive privilege, mm -hmm. that the executive deliberations are important to national security and there's a precedent for executive privilege that the courts have ruled over time. Mm -hmm. um, Pelosi is saying that's uh, he's obstructing. And when Pelosi originally announced, she said by going to the courts, he's obstructing justice. Right. Now we see they've changed obstructing Congress because, okay. as you know even better than me, Dr. Kabbalah, there is nothing in the Constitution that says executive privilege. That's a precedent the courts have established over time. But again, there's also nothing in the Constitution that grants Congress subpoena power. That's also from the courts. The courts have kind of established both of these norms, the Congress having subpoena power, the president being able to exert executive privilege in cases. The right. court is the arbiter of those things. Sure. And because the House has not taken up these this uh, fight between Trump on executive privilege or not in the courts, they have no good case on obstruction of justice. Mm -hmm. If they wanted an obstruction of justice, they should have won that court battle. And then uh, and then if, if Trump didn't comply, charge him with obstruction of justice. But because that court battle over executive privilege never took place, it just rests as an obstruction of Congress charge. Interesting. And certainly there's tension uh, between the branches. Historically, there's a disagreement even when it comes to judicial review, which I've done some work on are all three branches of government responsible for exercising their judgment when it comes to what's constitutional or not? Is it just the Supreme Court? I will say I've mentioned some areas where I think optically the Democrats haven't helped themselves. I think when Donald Trump's lawyers, President Trump's lawyers argue that executive privilege, inherent executive privilege is unlimited. We've heard that claim made. Mm -hmm. William Barr has also done some mm -hmm. research to that effect. Optically, my bet is that might be a, a weaker point for the president when when 
President Trump says there are no inherent limitations whatsoever. But I, I think it could be a wash. <clears throat> well, I mean, you'd need a court to say, no, you don't. This is the line. And yep. then if he doesn't comply with that line, you'd have an obstruction of justice charge. But they say, we can't wait. We can't go through the court process. We've got to go now because he's such a threat to national security. We have to remove him and borrow from office, right. which is kind of a funny argument to me when no one actually thinks he's going to be removed. Interesting. You know, so, yeah. Well, yeah. and especially independence. It's interesting to me going forward to consider what the political dynamic is in some of these battleground states. I'm sure you saw the Esquire article recently pointing out that over the last month, support among independents for impeaching, removing the president has gone down dramatically, something like 10 points. So we're, this is not a Wall Street Journal National Review article. This is Esquire saying this is a warning mm. for Democrats going into 2020. Be aware. It seems like the key constituency that Democrats need to regain independence in states like Michigan and Pennsylvania is falling away. So I, I wonder about that. If Do you have any thoughts about strategic implications? Yeah, I think um, in a Senate trial, we're going to be able to see the rules changed, control changed back to the Republicans. Yeah. We have this uh, an article out here about how right now there's discussions between the Trump team and Mitch McConnell, speaker, uh, excuse me, not speaker, a majority leader in the Senate about with the format of this trial and sure. taking place. I do think that once you go through the trial with a Republican-controlled Senate, and this is an interesting point, the previous impeachments, the same party at House and Senate, mm -hmm. and this is the first time we've seen one party controlling the House, sending right. it to a Senate by the other party where Changes the, the, the rules change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the rules are going to change. Trump is going to be able to have a more favorable environment here which to present his case. The narrative will thus change on it, and he's not going to be convicted or removed, so he's going to you know, be able to say he was vindicated by the Senate. It looks like 2020, yeah. this will be good for President Trump to wrap this up through this Senate process. And the disagreement you think is in terms of call witnesses or not in the Senate, is that what separates uh, Donald Trump from Mitch McConnell? Yeah, there seems to be Trump would like a more full trial to make his case, not only to the senators, I think to the voters. Yeah. And uh, Mitch McConnell and some senators are saying, as soon as we know we got the votes on this, let's just wrap this up. Interesting. Um, and I don't, a third of the senators are also up for re-election. They have to get back to their districts yeah. and campaign. At least a third of them. Only a third of them right. are up for a vote. So um, we're looking at how that's going to play out. Um, how's the vote going to go? So we, we talked about the, maybe the format here, but Democrats have 47 senators. Uh, Republicans have 53. But that's the simple math. Mm -hmm. Not all Republicans are from very Republican states like Texas. Not all Democrats are from Democratic states. Right. I look right away. I look at Joe Manchin yeah, no. in West Virginia. That's a very Trump state. He's a Democrat from a very Trump state. That's a tough vote. Sure. Doug Jones in Alabama from a very Trump state. Very tough vote. What do you think? I agree. Certainly, Senator uh, Manchin, I don't see being enthusiastic about uh, the process. Yeah, I really don't think Democrats in the Senate uh, have a lock. Let, let's see what happens. But this is, again, that polling uh, of independence to me suggests that a key constituency that Democrats need to recapture is just not on board. It's a little early, but I'm thinking less than 47 votes uh, um, to, to convict them in the Senate. Well, it's been great. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Kabbalah. We Thanks really appreciate it. Cogley and Morrow is on Facebook. We want our listeners to go there, like us. We also post interesting articles related to our conversations. We're also now on podcast form formats throughout the internet. You can hear Cogley and Morrow on politics throughout wherever you get your podcast feeds. We have lots of previous episodes. We look forward to that. We're wishing all of our listeners a good week. We'll be back next week with Dr. Morrow in the studio. This is Cogley and Morrow on politics on KTRL 90.5 FM.